2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll be reading verses 16 to 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though our outer Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is is eternal. Let's pray. Father, we ask as we approach your word that you would guide us in your truth. Teach us from what we are looking at today. Guard us from error. And as you inspired your word to be written, illuminate our hearts that we might understand it rightly. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if the past six months have demonstrated anything to us. It's just how fragile our comfortable lives really are. We began the year with a devastating bushfire crisis that resulted in the deaths of 30 people. Over 27 million acres were reportedly destroyed by The blaze, and it was estimated that approximately 480 million animals were burned alive in New South Wales alone. A month or so later, we began to hear reports of a deadly virus outbreak that was spreading across the globe. A virus that we're told is responsible for more than 500,000 deaths worldwide. In virtually every country, authorities were confining people to their homes in an effort, we're told, to slow the spread. People were only allowed to travel for the reasons that the government deemed essential. Many businesses were forced to close down. Some of them were financially destroyed beyond recovery. The prospect of essentially being placed under house arrest for an indefinite amount of time naturally took its toll on the mental health of many. Doctors from a hospital in Northern California said that they saw more suicide attempts during the lockdown than in most full years. In fact, the number of suicides in that region now exceed the number of deaths by the virus. For whatever their commentary is worth, the United Nations Security Council warned that the economic impacts of the worldwide lockdown would likely cause more deaths than the virus itself, with an estimated 130 million now supposedly facing starvation as a result. If that wasn't enough excitement for one year, the following month, as these lockdown measures were beginning to ease, we saw riots break out across the United States. Riots that resulted in dozens of deaths, injuries, along with the wanton destruction of private and public property. This chaos then spilled over into copycat protests around the world, even here in Australia. If we flick on the news any night of the week, we'll likely see something on fire, something being toppled, 
something being smashed or somebody being injured or killed. There is presently worldwide unrest and uncertainty. There's an anxious feeling that life as we know it could drastically change forever. But if we assure ourselves that we're relatively safe here in the mountains, unlike and unlikely to see such violence and vandalism in our hometown, it's not just these major external events that threaten us. It's actually more likely that we'll die from a threat within than a threat out there. In Australia, 150,000 people die every day from cancer. 60,000 people die from stroke. 36,000 uh, 36, people will die from heart disease. 20,000 people from high blood pressure, just to name a few. In fact, from the time we began the service until its close, more than 6,000 human beings will have died and passed into eternity. It's a horrible, horrible reality, and we don't like to think about it. But it is a reality that we must face. Whether we like it or not, death does approach us all. It's a, it's a truth that we would do well not to quickly forget. And as uncomfortable as that truth is, and as morbid as it may seem to meditate on our own mortality, we must not forget what David said in the Psalms when he prayed, Teach us, Lord, to number our days. What value is there in that? Well, listen to his reason. Teach us to number our days so that we may have a heart of wisdom. In the Bible, only the fool lives his life, ignoring the fact that his days are numbered, that someday his soul will be required of him. But isn't that exactly how our world copes with the reality of death? Unbelievers will generally try to deal with death in two ways. They'll delude themselves into imagining that death is natural and therefore, in a sense, it is beautiful. They'll use meaningless phrases like the circle of life and they'll pretend that they're an important part of some cosmic cycle. They pretend their death is somehow universally significant without God. But this, we know, is delusion. Or second, they'll deal with death by putting their fingers in their ears and convincing themselves that despite the fact that 10 out of 10 people die, death is something that only ever happens to other people. But again, delusion. Death and suffering in this world are a reality. And our history books bear witness to the fact that it doesn't matter who you are, whether small or great, rich or poor, Whether you're a Christian or a pagan, death is one of the only certainties of life. And death is very often preceded by suffering. As Bible-believing Christians, we don't hold to a false idea that if we come to Jesus, we'll find health, wealth and prosperity, an an easy life of comfort. No, at least not in this life. As we heard last week, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 to 9, we are afflicted, 
We are perplexed. We are persecuted. We are struck down. In the Western world, we've grown accustomed to comfort and ease. We see suffering as an abnormality. We see comfort as the norm. But in reality, the opposite has generally been the case throughout history. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, we're told in Acts 14. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, Paul warns Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. For the Christian, suffering is to be expected. That includes suffering of the very worst kind. Now, that may seem easy for us to acknowledge, but Paul, when he was speaking, wasn't writing from a carpeted brick church with comfortable padded pews when he said this. Paul wrote of suffering as someone who had likely suffered more than any of us ever will. He offers us just a small taste of his hardships in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the churches. Paul knew what suffering was. We will suffer in this life, especially if we are Christians. This is not an abnormality. That's why Peter says, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes. It's to be expected. The question is, how do we respond when that trial comes? How should Christians respond to the reality of suffering and death in this world? Well, considering Paul was one who was well acquainted with various difficulties and a wide variety of trials, we would do well to ask how Paul dealt with suffering. Well, he tells us in our text, 2 Corinthians 4, in verse 16, when he says, we don't lose heart. We don't become discouraged, not by beatings, not by shipwreck, not by bushfires, not by viruses, not by mobs of violent protesters, and not by cancer. We do not lose heart at these things. Okay, that's easy enough for Paul to say, but in reality, how is that even possible? What sort of human being can endure at least what Paul endured and not lose heart? You would think that if you were shipwrecked at least once, you may lose heart. Especially if you were shipwrecked twice. Paul was shipwrecked three times. Was he unhuman? Was he unfeeling? Are we supposed to just suppress our emotions and fake a smile? Are we supposed to just pretend that everything is fine while the world around us falls apart, while our bodies fall apart? 
is, is Paul so disconnected from reality that he can't properly appreciate pain or suffering and death for what it really is? We do not lose heart. Not at all. In fact, the opposite is the case. Paul doesn't lose heart because he sees the world for what it really is. He, ha- he sees reality for what it really is. Paul's not in denial about suffering and pain. He started this very letter by admitting that he had been so utterly burdened beyond his strength that he, dis- that he despaired of life itself. He was in such a difficult position that he wanted to die. He knew suffering. He goes on to say in the text that we're looking at that our outer self is wasting away. Our bodies don't work, not like they're supposed to. We are dying. We will die. And as as difficult as that reality is, Paul tells us something. That this is what we should not lose heart over. The reason he can say this is because Paul sees suffering for what it really is. There is a purpose to everything, including suffering, including death. How can we believe with Paul that God works all things according to the counsel of his will and for the good of those who love him if we think at the same time that our suffering is outside of his will and outside of his purpose for us? Now, according to Paul, suffering is not outside of God's control. It's not something that God simply permits to happen to us either. As remarkable as it is, Paul, for Paul, suffering is a part of God's plan. In fact, he actually says it's granted to us like a gift. Philippians 1 verse 29 It has been granted or gifted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Your faith in God is a gift, Paul says, but so is your suffering. It has been gifted to you that you should suffer for his sake. Now, I think most of us, would ask if he still had the receipt for such a gift and what the return policy is. It's uh, not something we would willingly accept. But Paul looks beyond the pain. He looks beyond the suffering. And he says, what's the value in it? What's the outcome? What's the result? What's God's purpose? Now, no good parent could watch their child suffer senselessly and do nothing if it were in their power to help them. Unless, of course, there was a greater purpose to that moment of pain. This is why we discipline children, not simply because they do wrong things, but we discipline them to learn. We discipline them to help them appreciate good things. For example, we give them an education Whether they like it or not, whether they protest or not, that is a form of discipline. We do it 
because we love them. This is why we force them to eat healthy foods. They may protest and tell us that it's killing them, they can't eat anymore, but we know what's good for them. It's not punishment. It's love. Hebrews 12 says, God is treating you as sons when you suffer. For what son is there whom father whom who's sorry whom his father does not discipline? The author goes on to say, for a moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. There are things that we can only learn through a painful experience. Our outer self is wasting away, Paul says. We are hurting, we are dying. But that's not all that's taking place. Verse 16, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. There is an inner transformation happening. We were born in the fallen image of Adam, but we're being crafted, we're being shaped after the image of the second Adam, Christ. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you, can't, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts horribly and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building a different house from the one that you thought of, throwing out a wing here, putting an extra floor on there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. How is this transformation coming about? We're being renewed day by day, he says in verse 16. But then he goes on to tell us how. Because for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Our present afflictions, he says, are preparing us for the world to come. For an eternal weight of glory. But what does that mean? What does that actually look like? Well, Paul could hardly put it into words. He says it's beyond all comparison. In fact, it's so great, so marvellous, so amazing that when it's compared to our present sufferings, to our, the wasting away of our bodies, as horrible as they are, he says they appear as light momentary afflictions. Compared to what we gain in Christ, the severity of all earthly suffering and pain, he says, is light in comparison. Compared to the eternal weight of glory that God is preparing us for. We can't comprehend half of what that means. 
The worst of what we suffer in this life is a light burden to carry, Paul says, next to the eternal weight of glory that will be experienced in the next life. And Paul says our suffering here, our wasting away, our light burdens are preparing us for something that we can't compare anything else to. You see, he says there's purpose in suffering. Our preparation. But he doesn't say that our our, uh, suffering is light. He doesn't just say our suffering is light in contrast with the glory to come. He says our suffering is also momentary. Unlike the eternal weight of glory, there is an end to our light affliction. It won't last. Our sufferings, even our death, will not be permanent. There was a preacher who once said, who once uh, gave an illustration that I thought was quite brilliant. He brought a piece of rope onto the stage and around the end of the rope he tied a little red uh, bit of tape. He had the rope fed off the stage and out of sight. And he asked the congregation, I want you to imagine that this rope is a one-ended rope. That there is no end to the other end, other side of this rope. It just runs on and on forever. He said, I want you to imagine that this rope represents your eternal life. The rope has a beginning, but no end. Just as your life has a beginning and no end. He said, imagine now that this small red strip represents your life. And the rest of the rope, your eternal life. If you're a Christian, all the pain and all the suffering that you will ever know is there in that strip. Matthew Henry said to the wicked, man, death is the end of all joys. To the godly man, it is the end. End of all grief. It is an eternity that is beyond all comparison. Do you see why Paul says we don't lose heart? Not only did Paul say there's purpose in present suffering, he had a perspective. He had an eternal perspective. Look at verse 18. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, because the things that are seen are transient or temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You see, our faith is tested not only when we are tempted by promises of good things, but also by trials and tribulations, when we are promised bad things. Will we believe in the midst of pain that God has A purpose. Will we have in the moment of suffering an eternal perspective? It won't make suffering less painful, but it can determine whether or not we endure in the midst of that suffering. Imagine walking down the street and you come by a nasty looking thorn bush, only to spot a $5 note sitting deep within its branches. You go to grab that note, but you soon realise 
that you are not able to do so without pushing through several sharp thorn branches. You won't be able to retrieve the note without injuring your arm. Now, when you measure up the damage that would be done to your arm with the value of the note, you'd likely think it's simply not worth it. It's not worth the pain. It's not worth the suffering. You could hardly buy a coffee. But what if instead of a $5 note, it was $5,000? Few folks would say it's not worth the momentary pain. You put your hand through and every gush and every scratch and every gash out of your arm would probably be worth it in the end. Question is, what's changed? The pain hasn't changed. Whether it was $5 or $5,000, the damage done, the pain suffered would be exactly the same. The difference is the value of the note. That will determine whether the pain is worth enduring. It's the future reward that changes the perspective on our present suffering. I'll say that again. It's the future reward that changes our perspective on present suffering. In much the same way that we suffer, some of us worse than others, much worse than others. But if we don't see the value of what's on the other side, if we don't see the purpose in the present pain, how can we endure? How can we not lose heart? If you're looking at the things that are seen, you will lose heart. If your treasure is here, you will be discouraged. Because the things that are seen, the things that are here, are temporary. They are momentary, just like our suffering. Look to the things that are unseen, the things that are eternal, the things and the things that are temporary and momentary cannot be compared. Now, this wasn't a perspective unique to Paul. The author of Hebrews tells us that Moses chose a life of suffering. He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He chose suffering. Why? He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking to the reward. He was able to discard temporary things seen and endure suffering because he was looking to the things that are unseen, the things that are eternal. He had perspective. Now, no man has suffered more than Jesus Christ. It would take an eternity for a sinner to bear the wrath that he endured on the cross. But we're told that he was able to endure that suffering and death because of the joy that was set before him. It was the future reward that changed how he viewed his present suffering. Perspective. An eternal perspective. Where to endure present pain, suffering, the way that Paul did, the way that Moses did, the way our Lord did. And whether we lose heart in the midst of that or not, 
will greatly be determined by how much we value what's on the other side. Paul says it's an eternal weight of glory. It's beyond all comparison. And it's promised to us from the King of glory himself, our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you know what suffering is more than any one of us. You suffered more than we ever will. We ask that you would strengthen us in this world of uncertainties, where death is a certainty, where suffering is a certainty. Give us the grace that we need to have a perspective like Paul. Help us to see eternity for what it is. Help us to see you, the glory that you promise us. Help us to look to the things that are unseen so that whatever we suffer here in this life, we may suffer in such a way that we don't lose heart. Help us to believe your promises even at the points when they feel so hard to comprehend. Give us the faith we need to trust in you, to believe that as bad as the things that we suffer in this world are, that the things that you promise us in the next are not worth comparing. Grant us this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.